Lord Jesus, we've sought to lift you up in worship, praise this morning. Lord, I ask you that you'll be glorified as we consider your word and consider all that you've done for us. Lord, will you come by your spirit and help us? Help me, Lord, to make it clear. Help us as we try to process all the wonderful things that are in your word. Lord, our desire is that at the end of it all, you are glorified. Please come and help us. Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as has been announced repeatedly, uh, we're starting a new series based on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've called it The Bigger Picture. And we should have a bigger picture on the wall. That's it. Good? Okay. Thank you, Helen, for helping us. Um, we will... Uh, be looking at uh, all the verses uh, in, in part of chapter chapter 1 and most of them will come up on the screen for you but if you want to follow it in your Bibles that, that's fine. Um, as scientific discovery has advanced particularly in relation to the vastness uh, of space and also because now the theory of evolution is fairly generally accepted as an explanation for the existence of, of life on earth, man has become smaller. We're much smaller than we ever thought we were. Long ago, man saw himself as the centre of the universe. Uh, he thought that the sun rotated round him. He saw the sun rising and setting and thought, well, the sun's going round me. It's, I'm, I'm in the middle of it all. But then, hundreds of years ago now, our solar system was discovered with Earth and other planets orbiting the Sun. Uh, so it was more the Sun that was the centre. And as more and more powerful telescopes were developed and the vastness of the universe better appreciated, scientists began to question uh, the uh, traditional understandings of the origin of life on Earth. Now, for example, scientists tell us that um, we are nothing more than the product of random elements, forces and environments combining my, by chance to produce life. And uh, that, uh, that those interactions have been going on for millions of years of the Earth's uh, history and that uh, as a result of that, man has emerged with no more significance than that he represents the higher form of that random development. We're told that this earth is only significant because of these chance forces and conditions that, and that probably there's a similar planet somewhere else out there in the universe which may have similar conditions and people are fairly convinced it's going to support life. There could be life like it is on earth. And of course that reduces earth's significance in the people's minds and of course man's unique significance. There are, of course, some um, fantastic science and natural history programs that we can watch on television which help us appreciate the wonders uh, of the universe. However, the worldview of many of the presenters can rob us of the astounding fact and astounding truth that God made it all for his glory and that he has chosen to share that glory, uh, all of that glory that he has made with man 
which is his special creation. Man is not an accidental byproduct of a randomly formed universe, but the very pinnacle of God's creation. And, and he's not some um, experimental plaything uh, that God has made, like a scientist might make uh, in a laboratory. But man, uh, it actually is the object of God's love. God made man that he might be the object of his love and that he may enjoy God forever and be totally fulfilled as God's agent on earth. And we see this intention in the first verses of the Bible, the very first verses of the Bible, man and God in fellowship together, man living in dependent relationship uh, with God. And God has entrusted man with filling the earth and ruling the earth on his behalf. But as we know, man chose independence from God and he broke that relationship with God and man has had to live on a cursed earth ever since. That's what the Bible tells us, that this earth is cursed. But God's purposes have not failed. He had a rescue plan from the beginning which he announced in the third chapter of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is a story, a history of God working out this plan until we get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and the last chapters where we see that which was lost at the beginning is restored with God living in fellowship with his people, that he is rescued from the effects of sin and disobedience, living on a renewed earth where there is no curse, no pain, no sickness, and no death. And if we read in Revelation 21, it said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will be with, live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things have passed away. I guess the important question to ask here is who are God's people? It says they will be his people, who qualifies to live with God on a renewed earth in this restored paradise. Well, the Bible paints a very grim picture of man in his natural state. He is lost, he's without hope, he's dead in sins, the object of God's righteous wrath, destined to face God's judgment and hell. And worst of all, he can do nothing about it. He cannot help himself. He cannot save himself. But the good news is that in spite of man's disobedience, he has not ceased to be the object of God's love and the central player in God's plans for the universe. In spite of the fall of man, as we call it, God still has a mighty plan for mankind. And... Uh, that is absolutely wonderful. And a measure of man's importance to God is God's willingness not only to be, become a man, to come and be a man uh, as the Son of God, but to die as a man that we might be forgiven and restored to God. And as we considered at, at Christmas time when we thought about the incarnation, about man, uh, God becoming a man, a human, human being, and then living a life and dying for our sins and then being raised to life again, we made the point that he ascended to heaven and that there is now a man 
in heaven. There wasn't before, but there is now a man in heaven. And there is a man incorporated into the Godhead. I don't fully understand that, but that's what the Bible tells us. That, that a, a, a man now uh, exists in heaven and he's there on our behalf. And therefore my conclusion is that God has honoured man more than we could imagine. That God has ma- honoured mankind. And whereas all our scientific uh, um, de- developments seem to, to diminish man, uh, in God's eyes man is very, very important. Ephesians is a wonderful book for many reasons, but the opening chapters in particular give us insights not only into the seriousness uh, of man's alienation from God, but how God, motivated by love and his passion to share his glory with mankind, went about rescuing us and making us totally fit for heaven. God has a plan, and if you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you're part of it. You're part of this mighty plan that God has. And you are rich beyond imagination. That's what Ephesians tells us. We are incredibly, infinitely rich as people of God. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 14 this morning. And uh, in, under the title of The Bigger Picture, if you want to follow it in your Bible, you can, but the, the scriptures will come on the screen. We could not get a bigger picture than here where we catch a glimpse of what has been in the heart of God from before time. That's the message we get from here, that God was thinking about his world and what he was going to make and what he was going to do with it before time, before the universe was formed, in eternity past. But here we have not just what God had in mind, but who. There is a who that God had in mind. And as we work through these verses, that we will see that Every aspect of salvation, that is, of being made right with God and fit for heaven, every blessing and every benefit bestowed and the assurance of a rich inheritance is entirely the outworking of God's sovereign will and plan to have a people for himself. We see that he is the master craftsman of it all and uh, his masterpiece is untouched by human hands. In that sense, God is the designer and the maker of this salvation that we are blessed with. It's part of our life, isn't it, that uh, we honour and reward people um, who manage to perform some outstanding accomplishments, be it in the realm of sport or, or science or military conflict or public service or community service and... Uh, there's often a TV programs uh, where these people, we, they t- their story is told of their outstanding service or their heroism uh, and uh, the people who are benefited from it. I don't know about you, but I like those programs to see what people have done, often behind the scenes uh, and so on, unsung heroes that are, are recognised. And I'm sure that in most cases our conclusion is that they deserve the recognition, the honour uh, that they've been given. Uh, because their service has been outstanding. But what we read here in Ephesians, and indeed in the whole of the New Testament, is just the opposite. Here we have a description of honour and blessing from God on those totally undeserving of it. Totally undeserving. And it's entirely as a result of God lavishing his grace upon us. 
That's the message we get. The word grace appears so many times in Ephesians. At the Olympics this year, there will be celebration after celebration of men and women's victories and achievements. And right now, people are clamouring for tickets uh, to be in the audience, to be spectators, to be observers of it. Ephesians is a glorious celebration of God's victory and God's achievements in elevating people from a hopeless state to the very heights of heaven. We don't need tickets and we won't be spectators. We will be with Jesus in the victory procession. That's where we'll be, in the victory procession. And it won't be because of our achievements, it will be because of God's mighty achievements in Jesus. So let's start with verse 1. I've headed this chosen and set apart for God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. If you don't know the word apostle, just means sent one, one who is sent with a commission, like an emissary or something like that, representing a higher authority. It's not an honorary title. I know I, I'm in, in the habit of saying the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul this and the Apostle Paul that just to ident- identify him. But it's more a job description. It's a bit like Bob the Builder. Okay? That just tells you what Bob does, doesn't it? All right? And it's the Apostle Paul just tells you what he does. Now, he does, his job does carry great responsibility and privilege, but it is a job description. It's not a title. Um, Paul, once called Saul, was a devoted Jewish rabbi who became the leader of an anti-Christian movement uh, until on the Damascus Road, Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared to him and arrested him and gave him a commission to take the good news about himself uh, into the world uh, and um, to be actually an ambassador of the movement he'd been previously persecuting. And uh, the book of Acts records three remarkable missionary journeys that took Paul throughout the Roman Empire. I'm amazed how he managed to travel. I guess largely on foot, sometimes by boat and so on, but he got about amazingly. He visited Ephesus twice and on the second visit stayed there for two years and founded a strong church in that city. The city itself was dedicated uh, to the goddess Diana, a very pagan city, but his church was established. Nearly ten years later, he wrote to his beloved friends in Ephesus from prison in Rome. Paul wrote a number of letters from prison. You'd never know by the tone of his letters because they're all upbeat, they're all positive, but he's there in prison. And it's a letter to the Ephesians that we have here that he wrote from prison. Um, We will consider more fully how apostles function in the church when we come to chapter 4 in a few weeks' time, where that's spelt out more fully. But here I want to emphasise that Paul was what he was and he did what he did uh, because it was entirely a matter of God's grace. And he was very aware of that. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And he was so conscious of it. Nevertheless, he had a God-given authority, uh, not only to plant the church, but to continue to nurture it with teaching and encouragement and, if necessary, discipline. He said, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
God arrested him. God appointed him. Paul was chosen and set apart for God, and so are all God's people. To the saints in Ephesus, um, no word in the New Testament had suffered more over the years than the word saint. Even the dictionary defines a saint as someone recognised for great holiness of life, a virtuous person. And the honour bestowed on them is usually done after they've died. And it's a process called canonization. There's a branch of the church that's always doing it. So somebody who's lived a good life, a virtuous life, sometimes uh, they have miracles accredited to them, then they are called a saint. But that's a misuse of the word. The word saint just means someone chosen and set apart by God for his special purposes. It's a sovereign act of God and it applies to all God's people. You are God's saints. You are the saints of God, set apart for his purposes. I think I mentioned it before, but I rather like, like to liken it to the utensils that were first used in the tabernacle in the wilderness for, in the process of worship and sacrifice. Uh, and then in the temple, they were just ordinary things like ladles and bowls and so on. Um, but they were set apart for God's purposes. They were cleaned up. If you like, they were sanctified. They were set apart for God's purposes and they were only used for those purposes. And I think that's a good description of us. We are specifically set apart by God for his purposes. Uh, There's a little story told of a girl in Sunday school and uh, the the class was held in the church building, an Anglican church with stained glass windows. And uh, the teacher said, can anybody tell me what a saint is? And she looked up at the window and she said, Yes, a saint is someone the light shines through. And I thought that's a really good description. Someone, I hope that's true of us as saints. Someone the light shines through. What we contribute is our faith. It says the faithful in Christ Jesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. This can mean either those who put their faith in Christ Jesus for salvation or it can be those who are devoted in their following of Jesus. It can mean that, both those things. But we must um, understand that faith is not a work, right? We don't earn our salvation by our faith. Faith is like a hand that reaches out for a gift. If I have a gift and I want to give you a gift, it's, I say it's completely free, here it is. Like, you, have to, you have to reach out for it, you have to take it. And that's how we see faith. You don't earn anything. You don't earn that gift by taking it. You just bless me by taking the gift that I've given you. So that is faith. So the faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a wish. This is not a wish on Paul's part. I wish you grace. I wish you peace. What he's saying is because you're people of God, because you're saints, then grace and peace are guaranteed to you. It's part of your salvation. The grace that saved you will see you home, just like we sing in that song, Amazing Grace. And the peace that rested on you when you found peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ will be yours. It will continue to be yours unless you mess it up, uh, unless you do things that destroy your peace. God's peace will rest on you. Verse 3, chosen for all the blessings 
of heaven. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's good to ask ourselves, first of all, which God are we praising? Because the, the term God is used quite broadly, isn't it? Um, Hindus would use the word God and gods. Uh, Muslims would use the word God. And to the casual bystander in the street, as it were, they're saying, well, it's the same God. You know, you're all worshipping the same God. But it's very important, this description that Paul uses, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship the God who is revealed to us through his Son, Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And it's very important where we get our revelation from because there's no way that Muslims would call God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, they don't believe God has a son. Certainly, they don't believe that the prophet Jesus died on the cross. So it's so important that we understand the God that we're worshipping. And so this is a good title, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This means everything is ours. Everything's in the bank for us. It's there. And this is a heading, if you like, it could be a summary of what's to follow. Paul goes on to explain what some of these blessings are. It's not all of them by any means, just some of them and the blessings that we receive. When we receive Christ as Saviour, God opens up all the treasures of heaven for us, some of which we can enjoy right now, and some of which are stored up as part of our inheritance. The Bible talks about inheritance, and we'll see a scripture that talks about that in a moment. It's like God has made a will, and our names are written into that will. The amazing thing is that everybody gets the same. We all get the same inheritance. uh, And it's uh, an amazing thing that God has planned for us. And this will will never be revoked. There are terms in the New Testament like our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This will will never be revoked. And we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So think about it as an inheritance that's held in trust for us until we come to a time of full maturity, when we receive new bodies, when we go to be with with Jesus forever. That's when we'll receive our full inheritance. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. And he starts just like Paul. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a living hope because we have a living saviour. It's a living hope. Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. That's why we are blessed with every blessing in heavenly places. It's held in trust for us. Verse 4. Chosen to be holy and blameless. Some of this has come out in our worship and it came out in Helen's picture this morning about the fact that that, that the new whiteness that's come upon us that uh, identifies us. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be 
holy and blameless in his sight. And that's the important thing, in his sight. We are justified in God's sight. And that's the most important place to be, how God sees us. And notice, it's before the creation of the world. It's from eternity past that God had us in mind. God determined that he would have a people for himself with whom he would share the glories of heaven. But God knew that the people he had made for this purpose would reject him and forfeit the right to these glories and also forfeit the right to be children of God. And as I mentioned earlier, um, he had a rescue plan in mind right from the beginning. A plan so wonderful uh, that it could cause helpless rebel sinners like us to be declared righteous. This is almost the scandal of the gospel, that, that sinners can be declared righteous without making any contribution to that themselves, through no merit of their own. You see, God, uh, if I might use the phrase, had an ace up his sleeve. It's called grace, which is how God expresses his love. God's grace is so powerful, so abundant, so amazing, that it's able to nullify the most gross of sins. The Apostle Paul said, as sin increased, grace increases all the more. You won't outdo God uh, with his grace by sin. Absolutely amazing. And um, God, so that God can nullify our sins so that God can guarantee that uh, he or she will be totally blameless in his sight. We can be totally blameless. This is how God sees us. But he wants us to live that out. God declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be blameless in his sight. But he says, now live like that. Now live that out in your life. And in Hebrews, there is a phrase which says that God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So God says your status is one of blamelessness and holiness but I want you to live it out in your life because that's what I've planned for you. Not just to declare you that in my sight, but for you to live it out uh, in your life. Chosen to be sons and daughters. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Paul mentions here, and we'll see later in verse 7, two great acts of God that he performs on our behalf in, making, uh, in this process of making us righteous. And uh, we'll see that it is his love that motivated him. We have here adoption, and a little later we'll have the word redemption. But these words work together. Uh, redemption and adoption, adoption and redemption. You'll see them work together. And the point is that God wants sons and daughters, not slaves. God wants sons and daughters and through faith in Jesus Christ he makes us his children. John tells us that we become children of God by receiving Jesus. John 1. Um, This is John telling us that Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, but the Jews rejected him. They would not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Paul describes this process of becoming children of God as adoption. And he's probably thinking about the Roman form of adoption, where a man who had no, perhaps no natural heir would adopt 
um, one of his slaves. He would redeem him from slavery uh, into the privileges of a son and uh, having the full rights of a natural son. It was a great honour uh, to be adopted by a Roman in those circumstances. The, the person adopted was as good as a natural son. And we see that this is through Jesus Christ that we become legitimate sons and daughters of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. In Galatians 4 it says this, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights, the full rights as sons. We are as much a son of God when we are saved as Jesus. Jesus said that, well, it says of Jesus, he is not ashamed to call us brothers, and that implies sisters as well. Jesus is not ashamed. We receive the full rights as sons of God. And then continuing in verse 5, we get in accordance with his pleasure and will. God did not have to screw himself up to do this. God did not have to grit his teeth and say, I will save these people, these wretched people. It was God's pleasure and will to do it. And we see at the end, it tells us in Jude, that God is going to receive us into his presence with exceeding great joy. It's, it's such a joy to God to have children uh, that he has saved. And it's to the praise of his glorious grace which he has give, freely given us in the one he loves. It's all to do with Jesus. Jesus is the key to all of these things. Verse 7, chosen to be redeemed and set free. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I guess that redemption or redeeming is not a word that we use very much these days. The Old Testament provides us with some background for our understanding where provision was made for the redemption of people uh, or possessions perhaps like land uh, that had passed from their original owner and become the property of another that could be redeemed. Uh, it could be described that Israel in slavery in Egypt was redeemed so that they could come out and be God's people. A modern example would be a pawn shop. Anybody visited a pawn shop? You don't have to tell me. Right. But, all right, that's okay, good. All right. Um, in my dad's youth, they were everywhere. My uncle was a, owned a pawn shop for a while, so my dad had quite a bit to do with it in some ways. And money was very short. People would be paid on a Friday. By Wednesday, they'd run out of money. So they would take an article that they had, a possession. It might be a musical instrument, a vase, or a watch. Take it to a pawn shop, uh, and the, the person would give them money and a ticket uh, on the basis of this, this item that they are depositing in the pawn shop. And then when they were paid on Friday, they'd go and get it out again if they hadn't spent the money already. So it, it, was, it was redeemed. It was redeemed. To, re, it's, to redeem means to purchase and set free by paying a price. That's the nearest we get, I guess, in, in, modern, um, in a modern situation. 
apparently there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire and they were often bought and sold like bits of property. And, uh, but they, they, could, they could be redeemed um, by their owner. Um, somebody could come and purchase a slave and set him free and say, you're no longer a slave. They would pay the money to the slave owner uh, and set him free. And that's what Jesus did for us. And the Bible tells us that the price paid was his blood. This is what Peter says. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This means that we are free from the law, free from slavery to sin, and free from the power of Satan and the world. Now, I don't know about you, but if you start to look into this, it's not that easy to understand how redemption really applies to us, how this idea of redeeming applies to us. And in fact, as a result of that, somebody has asked the question, to whom is the ransom paid for us? Jesus paid it with his blood, but to whom was it paid? Well, the answer is nobody. We can't, we can't have the, the, the metaphor of the illustration pushed that far. It wasn't actually paid to anybody. But Paul says here that our redemption has to do with the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I think we know that outside of Christ we are under the condemnation of the law. We've sung the song, there's no condemnation. It's a subject that's come up this morning already. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and should be justly punished. See, the law uh, made provision for rules to live by, but there were also penalties for breaking the law. And if you broke the law, then the law condemned you. The very law itself uh, condemned you. And... uh, By ourselves, we cannot get free. But Jesus, who was not under the condemnation of the law, the law still existed, but he did not sin. He was without sin. He never sinned. He took our place and took our punishment, dying instead of us, which is what Peter meant by saying, we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So, Here we have, we are helpless sinners. We are condemned by the law. We're in slavery to sin and we need to be set free. And the way that we are set free is that Jesus took the condemnation of the law that was on us. He he even took the penalty of the law that was on us so that it would not no longer be on us and we could be set free. That's what the Bible means when it says we are redeemed. We are redeemed not with perishable things, but with the blood of Jesus. And when we talk about the blood of Jesus, um, it's really about the death that Jesus died. When we talk about Jesus shedding his blood, it means that he died on our behalf. He took the punishment on our behalf. Verse 9. Chosen for cosmic understanding. I couldn't think of a better title for this. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Cosmic understanding. 
But it says here, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the time will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. When the Bible, and particularly Ephesians, talks about mystery, it's not something spooky. It's not that kind of mystery. It's something that was previously hidden and is now revealed. And it's revealed through God's apostles and prophets. That's part of the role of the, of the apostle, is to reveal the wonders behind God's salvation that had been previously uh, hidden. And um, it tells us that the way that history is heading is that Jesus will be head over all. And a little bit later in Ephesians, we're told he'll be head over all for the church, that we will share in his glory of him being head over all. So this is a bit of a sweep of history that we have here. That, that God, it's God's good pleasure which he purposed in Christ in due time that he is going to exalt Christ above all things. I think probably at the time when we were saved, we had little or no understanding of God's cosmic purposes. I'll call him that, if you like. Um, we may have only known that we were a sinner and we desperately needed to be saved. I don't know if you think about when you were saved, but what was going through your mind at the time? And um, you know, sometimes people come to faith as a result of a crisis uh, or tragedy in their life or because they're in the grip of some addiction and it's through faith in Jesus that they find their freedom. So if you ask somebody straight after they've been saved under those circumstances, maybe um, they were an alcoholic and you say, what's the effect of you being saved. Well, I'm off the drink. I'm free. I'm free from this thing that I was addicted to. And um, in, in many cases, those things seem very important to us. But God wants us to know more. God wants to know the enormity of what he's done for us, not just saved us from those circumstances, and even not just saved us from hell, but what he's put into the bank for us. And it's the apostles who give us this special insight. Here we see if I might put it this way, this Jesus who saved me from a destructive life, this Jesus who saved my marriage, this is hypothetical incidentally, this, this Jesus, this Jesus uh, who took away my guilt and shame will one day be head over everything and uh, everything in our fallen world will be restored and Jesus will be glorified as head over everything. And of wonder of wonders, we will share in it all. So salvation is more than that immediate effect that it has in our lives. It's something so much bigger. Verse 11 and 12. Chosen to bring glory to God. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, and I underline that, everything in conformity with his purpose, with the purpose of his will. There is nothing in history that does not work towards God's ultimate purpose. Man may do his worst and create every chaos under the sun, but everything will work to God's purpose. God is so sovereign, he is able to turn anything to his purposes and will accomplish it. It says, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of of his glory. Who are the we? It says, in him we also were chosen. So it's like 
a, a particular category of people. We also. Well, it's Paul and his fellow Jews who have turned to Christ. That's what he's referring to at the moment. Paul, a Jew, reminds us that God's plan of salvation has come through the Jews. It began with Abraham, a heathen that God called, and told him that through his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he became the father of the Jews. And we now know that through a Jew, Jesus, that was to be put into effect. That through Jesus, all the families of the earth will now be blessed. But when the gospel was preached and when the first converts uh, were made, it was Jews who became the first followers of Jesus. And that was to be to the praise of God's glory. Those first Jews would be the praise of God's glory, but they were to take the the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so that they would be to the praise of God's glory. They would live to the glory of God. And that's where Paul goes on, because in verse 13 he said, and you also, he said we, we, first of all, we were chosen, we were also chosen, but now you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Just note that we're already God's possession and our redemption will be complete on that last day to the praise of his glory. Here's some questions as we draw to a close. How do we get included into God's amazing plan? How do we become a saint? How do we inherit the blessings of heaven? How do we receive adoption as sons and daughters? How are we redeemed, set free from the tyranny and condemnation of sin? How can we receive all the benefits of being united with Christ, which Paul frequently describes as being in Christ. You'll find that phrase repeatedly, in Christ. The answer is through the gospel. This is the only way that we receive any of these things, the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's as simple as that. It's as profound as that. He said, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed... That's how we receive it. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we hear the good news. Now, we might hear that good news in many different ways. It may be through reading the Bible. It may be through listening to a preacher. It may be a friend who who shares the gospel with us. It may be through a gospel tract. It may only be a phrase. There are people who've been saved on a simple phrase which is just part of the gospel. But we have to hear it. We have to hear, somehow, hear the good news And then we believe. And as we believe, as we trust in what God has done on our behalf, then God saves us. It's as simple and and profound as that. But sometimes it's it's as difficult as that because we're proud. We we feel we want to give something to it. God must recognise something about me that he's going to acknowledge. No, we hear the word and we believe it and we put our trust in it. It's like saying, yes, I know all this truth. I know, the, I know the train is going there. I know it's going there. I've got the ticket, it's going there. 
but we have to get on board the train. We have to say, God, I trust myself to you. I entrust myself. I stop trusting myself now, and I, tr- in, I trust in you. And God says, if you do that, and if you receive Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you will be saved. The last question. How can we be sure, having been saved, how can we be sure that we will receive our inheritance? Well, I believe, first of all, we trust the word of God. God told us, and he's told us repeatedly in here, that we will receive our inheritance. But God goes further. How will we, will we be sure that we will receive our inheritance, the spiritual blessings in heavenly realms? How can we be sure that this is certain enough for me to surrender my life uh, to God uh, and to live my life at whatever cost it, 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 uh, it proves to be as a follower of Jesus? There are plenty of people in the world, it costs them almost everything to follow Jesus. In Muslim countries, if they become Christians, they are persecuted, imprisoned, and so on. We've got to have some assurance, haven't we, that it's true, it's all true. And God provides the answer. It's a guarantee, it's a deposit, a down payment in the person of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago, didn't we? And we talked about the indwelling presence of God, the witness of the Spirit within. And this is what he is talking about here. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The presence of the Spirit in the believers, in the church, as we move out onto the streets, is a foretaste of the age to come. It's, it's a, a little bit of the age to come, the ho- measure of the Holy Spirit that we have now. I do want to say that people's experience of the Holy Spirit varies tremendously. The most important thing is that you believe and you put your trust in Jesus. There will be some people who um, are very aware of the Holy Spirit in their lives, others who sometimes struggle with that. Don't worry about that at all. Um, Everybody is different and we, we just need to know that God is present in our lives and as time goes on we will see the activity of the Holy Spirit working out in our lives. Here's what Paul and the Apostle John says about the Holy Spirit in the presence of the believer. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. I think we know the love of God in our hearts and that's by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. We have this thing, some people said, I've got a knower. All right? it's, it's in here. I can't explain it, but I know. I know God is for me. I know God has saved me. I know God is my Father. I can't prove it, but I know it. I believe that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. The next one. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him... We cry, Abba, Father. Uh, That word Abba means Daddy, Dad. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's that Noah inside. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Then Galatians, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts 
the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So we've looked a little bit at some of the detail. I hope there's not been too much for you, but there's just so much richness in this passage of Scripture, and I've really only skated over much of it. But it's the bigger picture, and here's the summary that we've looked at. The bigger picture, chosen and set apart for God. Is that how you feel about yourself? Do you see how God has honoured you and he's chosen you and he's set you apart for a purpose? If you believe in Jesus, if you've received Jesus as your saviour, that's who you are. You've been chosen and set apart for God. Chosen for all the blessings of heaven. It's in the bank. It's in the will. It will not be revoked. Uh, It's kept in heaven for you. It's secure. Um, Nothing will take that away. God's blessings are there for you. Chosen to be holy and blameless. God makes us acceptable to himself. He makes us, he gives us a cloak of righteousness or like the snow that Helen talked about. God clothes us with the righteousness of Christ and that's how he sees us. But he says, now live that out. Now order your life so that you become more and more like Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. Chosen to be sons and daughters. We are adopted and we receive the full rights as sons and daughters. The full rights. Chosen to be redeemed and set free. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We've been set free from the condemnation of the law, the slavery that held us. Chosen for cosmic understanding. The apostles pulled back the curtain, as it were, on history and said, this is how God is working and this is how God is working on your behalf. This is what God is doing for you throughout history. Chosen to bring glory to God. Everything God does is for his glory. You might say that's a bit selfish, everything God does for his glory, but he includes us. And if God is glorified, we are blessed. We are, gl- we are blessed. And God wants us to share in his glory. So the more that Jesus is glorified, the more we will be blessed. And we're chosen for a guaranteed inheritance. We have a ticket. We have a down payment. Okay? We have a guarantee of what is to come. We have a foretaste of what is to come right now. And it's confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we know that there are those who feel this earth is doomed, that mankind will destroy himself one day through all sorts of means, that, uh, Lord, this planet is reeling out of control and uh, not, Lord, that we should neglect to look after what you've given us, but, Lord, thank you that you have such a bigger plan, Lord, that things will not happen by accident, but you have planned and purposed that you will have a people for yourself and that you'll enjoy them forever and we will enjoy you forever and you will create a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells and there's no pain or death. Lord, thank you that you've revealed something of this mystery, Lord, to even us, that we can anticipate it, we can look forward with hope and joy and be amazed at what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us, Lord, Now, having known these things, to live to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.